0: Good morning. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. One last time, Deuteronomy 8, verses 6 through 20. This is Moses speaking to the Israelites. Observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in obedience to him and revering him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks streams, and deep springs gushing out into the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing, a land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors, as it is today. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. Like the nations the Lord destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed. For not obeying the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much.
1: Good morning. So as Ryan said, we're we're taking two weeks to talk through Deuteronomy eight. Uh, This is, to me, the most interesting chapter in Deuteronomy, not because it's the most pleasant necessarily, but because I think it is, um, it does such a good job of conveying the rich dynamics of our spiritual lives and our journey with God. And so we've taken two weeks to talk about it. Last week, we looked at verses one through five, where Moses looks back on the time in the wilderness, and we talked about the wilderness seasons of our lives and some of the temptations that exist in the wilderness, and some of the opportunities, some of the things that God is up to, what he's doing in our lives through wilderness seasons. And now we look to the second half of this, and where Moses looks ahead to the, to the time that they'll have in the promised land. And so we're going to talk about the promised land today. We're going to talk about the temptations of the promised land, and we're going to talk about the opportunities of the promised land. And you know, I'm just so aware, as, as Ryan is he's. You know, leading us in prayer for people who have just experienced this, these horrendous crimes. You know, in our nation, um, these dynamics—the the wilderness and the promised land—those uh, always are exist, coexisting with one another, right? I mean, in a in a community this large, some of us are in the wilderness right now, and, and you might be in the wilderness, and you're sitting right next to someone who's in a promised land season, a time of great abundance and. And and wealth and joy and fun and opportunity, and um, that's what makes the church, that's what makes life so complex and yet so rich. So today we're going to talk about the promised land, and I want to talk through first the temptations that are there, and then what is the opportunity, what is the call uh, to the promised land when we're in these really amazing times of life? So let me describe to you the promised land. The description Moses gives us is perfect, but I want to talk through this. Last week I, I described the wilderness, and so today I'm going to describe the promised land. Some of you are in it right now. Some of you are not. Um, But either way, let me talk you through the promised land. Let me show you a picture of the actual promised land. This is the land of Israel. I I assume in the spring, uh, Israel's spring is pretty similar to our spring. I've been there in the spring. And so a lot of the same flowers, a lot of the same blossoms and same kind of general climate is is there. Um, Moses gives a description of the promised land in verse 7 through 9. And so I just want to put some language, some words to the promised land. Let me, let me read to you from verse 7. Uh, he describes it as a land with brooks, streams, and deep springs gushing out into the valleys and hills. All right? So the promised land is at least a land of, we could say, refreshment of water. Right? Right? Verse 8, he describes it as a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey. A land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing. Okay? I'll use the word abundance. The promised land in contrast to the desert is a place of great abundance and provision. And then finally he describes it as a land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper. Out of the hills, right? So there's a lot of potential in this land. So I'll just call it a land of potential, a land of opportunity. There's resources that are there that give you lots of opportunities. So the promised land is a place of material blessing, a place of fullness, a place of provision, a place of potential, a place where the future looks bright, all Right? That's what it was certainly going to be for Israel. And I want to kind of just connect us today um, with this idea of the promised land. And, and what does the promised land look like for us today, all right? And I want to just suggest two things. The first thing is to acknowledge that all of us, regardless of what season we're in, in one sense, we are all living in the promised land as we are in 2019 in Orange County. By any worldly standard, we live in the promised land according to human, all human measurements, right? I was picturing the story. Remember when Israel's in the desert and they sent the spies to the promised land to scout it out? And they came back with some of the bounty, some of the the fruits and the produce. And imagine the Israelites being in the wilderness all that time. And them coming back with all this great food and going, oh, this is going to be an amazing place. And I was just picturing like a modern version of that. Like if you had someone who lived in like some poor developing nation come to Orange County to scout it out for friends of theirs. So that they're going to go move there and taking photos of it. And coming back, back and, and showing them pictures of the promised land. Let me just show you a couple photos they might show them. Okay, they flew in on a, on a plane, right? And they bring these photos back to their friends in, in Haiti or, you know, some poor developing place. It's, it is a land of beauty. It is a land of opportunity. Uh, it is amazing. Um, they have an entire island dedicated to fashion in this, in this promised land, Right? These, these stores of abundance, they have these beautiful, vast, immaculate, lovely homes filled with good things uh, and the produce of this land. The diversity, the, the, the options available of good, rich food is just uh, amazing, all right? So I just want to acknowledge <laughs> that from a, from a human standpoint, we all live in the promised land. And that reality is going to shape our spirituality, whether we want to acknowledge that or not, all right? So in one sense, I just want to say that, that we live in the promised land. But in, the other, in another way, I want to talk about that we sometimes go through promised land seasons in our lives, Right? And last week, I encouraged you to identify a wilderness season of your life. Now, I want you to identify, you know, what's a, what's a promised land season of my life? And you might be in one right now. But I want you to think, what's the most recent promised land season you've been in? Okay, let me describe what the promised land seasons feel like. Um, work is successful, right? Work is going along well. Or your, your retirement, you've got a good retirement setup, Okay. Um, There is money in the account that gives you a sense of security about the future. Uh, You have your health. You have your wealth. Uh, Travel is enjoyable. The way I would describe promised land seasons would be those are those times in your life where a friend says, hey, what's keeping you up at night these days? And you go, you know what? Actually, nothing. Nothing is keeping me up these days. What a wonderful that's actually, nothing's keeping me up. That's a promised land kind of season. So I want you to identify when the last time you had one of those seasons. You might be in one right now, all right? I would say I'm in one right now. This summer has been absolutely a promised land season. We just got back from a week in Maui. My kids are healthy. I'm enjoying my work. This is a fun time. Nothing's keeping me up at night, not much. You might be like, I'm, I, I hate you right now. I wish I had that. There's there's a word there's a phrase that's used um, I think that's a very important phrase that is repeated in this in this passage and in other passages in Deuteronomy it's a phrase in verse ten when you have eaten and are satisfied it shows up again in verse twelve when you eat and are satisfied let me just put it up there when you eat and are satisfied it's used in verse six I think we're supposed to hear this phrase and there's something about it. This is an experience of the promised land, eating and being satisfied. And the picture I had this week is like this. Promised land seasons are, are like a great meal. It's as if God lays out this beautiful spread for us, okay? And I want you to actually picture a spread, okay? The last party you were at, that there was a, a table full of food, and it was a great spread of food. And really, that's what God was doing for the Israelites in the promised land, right? In giving them the promised land, he was laying out this spread of bounty, of goodness, of generosity, of provision. And what I love about that is he was laying out this spread for former former slaves, people who had known oppression and slavery, and from wilderness wanderers, people who had wandered in the desert for 40 years, Okay, after 40 years in the desert, imagine what this spread would have felt like to them. And this is the experience we all want in life of being able to have this spread laid out and to eat it and be satisfied. That's the experience. And of course, I'm not just talking about food, right? But an experience of of provision and blessing and joy and goodness to be able to take all of that in and be satisfied by it. All these tangible blessings. Okay. This is what people live their lives for. <laughs> right? This is what we all want. It's, not a, it's really good to want this. We all want this. We want to take in life and be satisfied. Experience fulfillment, happiness, joy. That is what the promised land is all about. All right? But <laughs> what we find out in this passage, as good as that is, and it is really good, That there comes with this experience a very deep temptation. And it is a big temptation because it is so subtle and it is so insidious. And Moses goes on to talk about the temptation of the promised land. It's summed up in verse 14. Look at verse 14. Here it is. Here's the temptation, the danger of the promised land. When you eat and you're satisfied. Verse 14. Then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God. Okay? Last week, we talked about the temptation of the wilderness. This is the temptation of the promised land experience, twofold. One, your heart will become proud, and two, you will forget the Lord your God. That was Israel's temptation. That is, I would argue, our temptation in promised land seasons of our lives. let me talk about both of these, okay? First, temptation. Your heart will become proud. Pride is the temptation. And if you're sitting here today and when you hear the word pride, you think of something obvious and ugly and so overt. You're like, there's no way I would ever do that. You think of someone who just talks themselves up and, you know, is kind of full of themselves. If that's what you hear in pride, I want to say that is not the kind of pride that Moses is talking about. What he's talking about is much more subtle and much more nuanced than that. Look at verse 17. Here is the pride. Look at verse 17. You may say to yourself, notice, pride is not so much what we say to others about ourselves, <laughs> but it is, pride is something we say deep in our own hearts to ourselves about ourselves. And what is it that we say? You may say to yourself, here it is, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. Okay, that's the temptation. The temptation is to move towards a posture of what I would call self-made-ness, right? Self-accomplishment. To look at these blessings and somehow say, I did this, right? This is about me. I have brought this about. And then I think the great danger is that moves us towards this place of self-sufficiency. I have what I need, right? I did this and I've, I've kind of got where I need, what, what I need. Um, that is a deeply ironic posture to take, certainly for Israel as it is for us, especially for Israel in light of the story of Israel. If I, I'm going to show you a, a verse in chapter 6 where God reminds them of what the promised land was all about. It was not about what their power and wealth could achieve. Here's what he says in chapter 6, verse 10 and 11. The Lord your God is bringing you into a land, listen to this description, with flourishing cities you did not build, right? The cities were there already before they entered into the promised land. Houses filled with all kinds of things you did not provide. Wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. The great irony is God laid out a spread in the promised land, promised land. As Israel went in and conquered the peoples there, all of these things were already waiting for them. They got to inherit homes and vineyards and, and all the blessings of the promised land. They didn't create these things. God gave them to them as, as a gift. But they would forget that over the generations and think, no, no, we did this. This is about what we could do. Um, look at verse 18 in our passage. Look at what he says after saying, talking about self-madeness verse 18 but remember the lord your god why for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth right you're going to say my power the strengths of my my hands made these things okay so you have power and strength well guess where those came from where did that very power and strength come from <laughs> those very things came from god those things themselves are gifts from God, And I, I could preach an entire sermon on this, but you read the, the, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it does two things. One, it absolutely affirms personal responsibility and hard work. You read the, the, the Proverbs, and yes, work hard. Personal responsibility, you know, accomplish things in life. But it also, at, at the very same time, it has this big picture of God's sovereignty that says, you know what? In the end, yes, do all that, but all of your life is a gift from God because he gave you the ability to do all of these things. He provided you with all of the opportunities. So yes, you work hard and you do these things, but in the end, you step back and go, this is all from God. I mean, at the most, in the most fundamental way, all that I have is indeed a gift from God. The New Testament puts it this way. Paul says it this way. What do you have that you did not receive? In the end, everything you have, you received. And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not. And I just want to say, this is what wealthy, successful people like us forget sometimes, (laughs) that everything we have is a gift from God, right? We forget all of the gifts we receive to be able to produce the promised land experience we have, whether it's wealth or health or, or success or whatever it is, right? I mean, We were born into a family oftentimes that was a family of means, but we didn't choose that. We were given a certain intelligence that we didn't choose. We were given education. We were given luck. We were given opportunities, none of which we did ourselves. Even, I would argue, even our very constitutional makeup, (laughs) are we hardworking? Are we industrious? That very makeup itself was given to us by God. Okay. And again, I'm not saying we're not personally responsible to live that out. But I'm just I'm a parent now. I was having this conversation with some friends last last Sunday after church. And someone's about to have a kid, and we we're talking about how different each of our kids are and how they just kind of came out that way, you know? Like I have a daughter who is shy and reserved and very determined inside. She's going to be an athlete because she, she gets locked in on something, and she'll just keep trying until she can do it, but she's shy. She's determined. I have another child uh, who is funny, who is a wooer. She will woo you in three seconds. She's an opposer when she doesn't get what she wants. They're radically different kids, and I don't think either of those kids at two years old looked at a list of constitutions and said, that's the one I'm going to go after, right? Right? No, they were, they were handed a, a, a set of cards, essentially. And they get to play their cards. They are responsible for their cards. <laughs> all that to say, there's a whole sermon there. Everything that we have in the end is, is gift from God, right? And so that's what God is reminding them. Hey, first off, you didn't build these homes. But even if you go on to build homes, who gave you the strength to do that? And that is a humbling reality. It's all gift. But the temptation of the promised land is to forget that. And to live with a sense of self madeness No, no. To look at these things and say, all these blessings say something about who I am. And to live with this profound sense of self-sufficiency. So that's the first temptation. Verse 14, right? Your heart will become proud. And then the second temptation is this. Verse 14. And you will forget the Lord. Okay? In the sense of self-sufficiency, we then forget the Lord. And of course, this also is is deeply ironic, a deeply ironic response, response because who is the source of all of these great gifts in our lives? The Lord, God, right? The very source. He's the one that keeps giving us these things. And yet in the giving and the receiving of these gifts, we can start to focus on the gifts themselves and start to just think about them and lose sight of the very source of all of those gifts. So the gifts themselves can become A distraction, a hindrance, a substitute for the very one who is giving us these gifts every single day. And we can forget. And Moses says, Your temptation will be to forget the Lord your God. Now, he's not talking about intellectually forget. He's not saying you're going to wake up and the idea of God will be erased from your theological worldview one day, right? No, he's talking about a relational forgetting. You're going to forget about the relationship, you'll forget about the history. That you have with the Lord. Look at verse 14 again. Okay. Your heart will become proud. And what are you going to forget about the Lord? You'll forget the Lord your God. And then he rehearses the history who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He talks about all these things that God did in their history. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of the hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and test you so that in the end it might go well with you. Remember, God saved you. He led you. He fed you. He watered you. He tested and humbled you to teach you dependence. And he's saying, but in the promised land, you're going to forget those times of dependency. Those times when you had nothing, when you cried out to the Lord and he answered you, and you found that he was actually faithful and he wouldn't leave you or forsake you, and you had this deep sense of dependency and trust and intimacy and passion, and you needed him, the reality is, and that need kept you close. And in the promised land, you'll be tempted to forget all that. I love this quote. This is a commentary I'm reading. To forget the Lord involves what it means to forget a person. As distinct from merely forgetting a fact, to forget a person is to lose touch with the story of the relationship and all it meant in the past and should mean now. That is why it's such a hurtful and diminishing thing to feel forgotten, right, by other people with whom one has shared a story and relationship. This is no less true for the God of Israel. Right, the temptation is to forget the story. And we have many of us in this room have old friends. What do we say of old friends? We say, we got history. We've got history together. And you can't you can't replace history. You can have new friends, but you can't replace history. And God would say with us, we have history. <laughs> but the temptation of the promised land is to forget. Oh, I forget, I forget the history. I'm not living in touch. With that time when I cried out and you answered me. And you filled me with trust, independence, and and passion. We so often make fun of the Israelites, right? Man, you saw all these amazing things and you so quickly forgot. And I bet every one of us can relate to that. Like, all of us have had those wilderness seasons where we're in this place of desperation and need. We cry out, God shows up. And we make a vow, God, I will never forget you again. Right? It's going to be different from here on out. And it's amazing what a year of comfort and ease can do where we lose touch with the person, that sense of closeness, intimacy, passion, dependency. It is the natural human predicament. All right, so that's a lot of time on the temptation of the promised land because Moses spends most of his time on the temptation. So that's what I I wanted to do. But let me just sum this up. You guys still with me? Seeing a couple glazed, I don't know if this is like shame and guilt or just boredom, I'm not sure what I'm seeing, Um, a little bit of both. Um, So the temptation of the promised land, right? We focus on the blessings themselves and we get the sense of self-sufficiency and in our sense of like, I kind of have what I need, right? We move towards forgetting the closeness of the relationship with God. Our spirituality becomes lukewarm. Okay? God slowly recedes to the periphery of our lives. He's still there as an idea, but not he's not at the center. Okay? I can't go on without just mentioning the Revelation church of, of Laodicea in Revelation 3 because this is precisely what happened to them. And the description of them is such a perfect description of the temptation of the promised Let me read it to you. This is Jesus speaking to one of the seven churches in Asia Minor. He says this, I know your deeds. That you are neither cold nor hot, but are lukewarm. So these people have a very lukewarm faith. They're not passionate anymore. Why? Here's why he says. Because you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth. And here's the kicker. I do not need a thing. That's that proud self sufficient. I got everything I need. Jesus says, man, you're not seeing yourselves right. You don't realize actually, spiritually speaking, you're wretched, Pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. What do you really think, Jesus? And he says this, this famous line to this church. Here I am, right? I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Saying your, in your self-sufficiency and your wealth, you've kind of pushed me outside of the church. I'm outside of my own church. I'm asking to be brought back into the center, Right? That is the temptation of the promised land. I've got everything I need. I've got a great job. I've got money in the account. I've got friends. I've got a sweet retirement. I've got great travel opportunities. I've got my health. I've got doctors when I don't have great health. I've got everything I need. I'm self-sufficient. I kind of can do life without God. And then God kind of just gets pushed to the side. It's subtle. It's insidious. It's much more subtle than the wilderness temptations. So, this is the question, of course. How do we prevent that? <laughs> How do we not do that? The answer is not, well, let's, ma- let's throw ourselves back into the wilderness. That's not the answer, though sometimes that's what happens. That's not the answer. Uh, if that's the temptation, what is the opportunity in the promised land? I think there's a lot of answers. I'm going to only give you one today, and I think it's the heart of what, what um, Moses focuses on. It's in verse 10. Take a look at verse 10. This is so simple and basic, You're won- you'll wonder why I get... A full-time job for what I'm about to say. Here it is. This is what he encourages. Here's our phrase. When you have eaten and are satisfied, what do you do? Duh. Praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. That is the antidote. That is the response to promised land experiences. Praise the Lord your God. The Hebrew word more literally is bless We'll see that for like, blessed be the God, that that phrase. To bless the Lord, to praise him. In our language today, we would talk about gratitude. It is about being grateful. It is about giving thanks to the Lord for all of the good things that he's providing us. He's given all these good things, so we respond with thanks, praise, blessing, gratitude. So I want to end by talking about gratitude for a couple minutes. Um, gratitude is the antidote to pride, (laughs) okay? Gratitude keeps us humble, keeps us focused on God and all that he is doing and all that we are receiving from him that we do not deserve. Pride keeps us connected. I'm sorry, (laughs) pride, don't quote me on that one. Gratitude, (laughs) yeah, always, wait, no, no, never, right? Um, um, Gratitude keeps us from forgetting the Lord. In gratitude, we stay connected to the giver of all of these gifts. So I want to talk about gratitude for a couple minutes to to close this up. And I love talking about gratitude. Uh, We can never get enough of gratitude. It's so simple, and yet it's elusive so often. Uh, I want to take you to a New Testament passage. This is my favorite passage. New Testament passage about wealth. Okay. He's talking to rich Christians. That's most of us in this room. He doesn't condemn them. So I think that's probably my, my, it's my favorite, favorite passage. Um, I love this. Paul says this, command those who are rich, who have a promised land experience financially, if I can put it that way, who are rich in this present world, not to be arrogant. There's the pride, right? Nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain but to put their hope on the giver of the gift, on God. And here's the phrase I love, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. I think that is a delicious phrase. This God who richly provides us with everything for what? Our enjoyment. Not for our guilt and shame, not for anything else, but no, he provides us all these things for our enjoyment. We could go around right now and all share stories of, of just our, our summer so far and the things that God has richly provided us with for our enjoyment. I just talked about a trip to Maui last week that I went to. God richly provided that for our enjoyment, and it was very enjoyable. We could all share stories. I want to show you a diagram today. I've shown this to you before. I've tweaked it a little bit. So we all have this relationship with God, right? Here's me and here's God. I want to talk about gratitude and God's gifts. I hope this is helpful. This is helpful for me. Um, So I have this relationship with God. The truth is I'm an embodied being. God didn't just make spirits to float. He, He created a heaven and an earth, and he created these beings that are embodied that live in time and space. And so one of the ways our relationship works with God is God gives us tangible blessings, right? Something into our lives. He gives us health. He gives us vacation. He gives us a home. He gives us children. He gives us friends. He gives us food, any number of things. And God's intent for all of his blessings always would be that they would be like windows. That's the analogy I want you to use today. Like they are windows through which we see God, through which we experience him, through which his grace comes to us, right? A couple of years ago, I, I had a friend say, God's grace is so often mediated through the senses. And that phrase has stuck with me for so long. When I think of grace, I usually think of just this theological concept, like God's forgiveness of my sins. It's the sort of this intangible, which of course, it inc- that's the most important form of his grace. But in daily life, his grace so often comes to me through the senses. His Unearned favor, right? His goodness comes to me through a wonderful meal I celebrate, through my three children who I get to take in their bodies and hug them and enjoy them, through uh, a, a fun surf session, right? His grace, his goodness, his generosity comes through very tangible, practical blessings. And I get to experience those. He intends me to experience those as windows through which I am experiencing him and his goodness, all right? Now, the danger of the promised land is when these blessings that God intends to be windows essentially become walls, right? That we stop thinking about the giver of the gift through whom this gift came. And we get into this little smaller cycle where all we're doing is focusing on the blessing itself and wanting the blessing itself, looking to the blessing to provide joy and significance and happiness and seeing from the blessing, hey, this blessing tells me something about myself. The fact that I have all this blessing, man, that, that tells me I'm, I'm kind of pretty cool, actually. I'm kind of a big deal, right? That's the danger of... Of the promise, that's the temptation of the promised land. These very gifts from God can become substitutes for God. Our our hearts get attached to them. That's the danger of the promised land that Moses is articulating. So sometimes God chooses to take us through wilderness experiences. And what is the wilderness experience? God says, you know what? I'm going to pull back this tangible blessing right? Your health that you enjoyed, that's going to go away. Um, the finances are pulled back. The relationships are pulled back. The sense of certainty about the future is pulled away. And at least part of what God, I'm not saying this is the, the reason all these things happen, but part of what God is trying to do in the wilderness, we talked about this last week, he's like, I want to get you out of that little loop that you've got with the blessing. I want to, I want to reestablish this, <laughs> right? And so the wilderness the opportunity of the wilderness is to reestablish that, hey, it's not, don't love me for my gifts, love me for myself, right? I want, I, I want, I want you, I want, I want to be the treasure of your life, not the things I provide for you. And so when we're in the promised land, this is God's intention, that we experience all of these things as his grace, as, as evidences of his goodness to us. And the way we do that, I'm arguing, is Gratitude. Gratitude is the thing that kind of completes the cycle. God graciously gives gifts, and what we give back in experiencing these gifts that are there for our enjoyment is we give back gratitude. Gratitude keeps me focused on the giver. Every time I experience a gift, I don't stop at the gift. I give thanks to the giver, and I actually experience the gift as an experience of him. Because then, if that's true, then all these blessings don't have to get in the way of my relationship with him. All these blessings are actually ways that I experience him. They can lead me to a deeper experience of him through gratitude as I give him thanks. Is this making sense? Okay, I'm just going to tease this out. I know I'm going a little long, but I'm going to tease this out a little longer. Uh, Let me give you one example. Let's take a meal. I've been talking about this spread that God lays out. So let's actually take an actual meal. I'm going to have a really nice lunch. You're going to go out to brunch this afternoon. Uh, and you're going to have a great uh, meal, all right? Um, we have this Christian practice that, of what we do. What do we do before meals? We pray, right? Now, that can become an empty, rote thing, but in its, in its pure form, it's actually an amazing thing. What do we say? We say, before meals, say, who wants to give the blessing? Who wants to give the blessing? And that what we are doing there is we're saying, this meal is a blessing, and so before we eat it, we're going to bless the blesser of the blessing. Or what do we say? Who, wants to say? who wants to say grace? We're receiving a meal. Someone should say, grace. This is grace. This is evidence of your grace and your generosity to us. Okay, again, that could become a rote thing. But that's the right posture to take a meal. I'm going to share a meal right now. But really, if I take in that posture, then every meal is an opportunity for fellowship with God. This is time of communion. I'm going to use that in the meal, but this is a time of fellowship with you. I'm acknowledging that I'm eating this thing, and it's an experience of your goodness and generosity and your grace, and I give that back in gratitude. This meal tangible meal is a window through which I experience the ways you like to provide and satisfy me. I'm not only eating and being satisfied by a meal, I'm eating and being satisfied by your goodness and your generosity to me, right? Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. Every meal is an opportunity to taste and see, not just that this steak sandwich is good, no, I'm tasting and seeing that the Lord is good through the steak sandwich, okay? Okay? And what if we approached each blessing in our lives with that same posture that sometimes we approach in a meal? As I walk into this room every Sunday, this is grace. I get to sit with my friends. I get to hear some great music. I get to listen to some okay teaching. You know, I get to connect with people. I get to worship the Lord. Grace. You go out to brunch. Grace. You're going to go home to beautiful homes today. That is grace. You're going to go down and take take a, a walk with a friend. Grace. This is all these blessings, these windows into God's generosity, his care for us. In all of these ways, we are giving thanks to the God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Um, G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorite writers, One of my favorite one-liners, he's got so many good one-liners, one of my favorites of those is this. The worst moment for an atheist is when he is really thankful and has no one to thank. (laughs) Right? And we always have someone to thank. And the temptation of the promised land is to live like an atheist. And to take in all this stuff, but just stay in this little cycle of me and these blessings and keep going after all these things, whether it's money, whether it's relationship, and just stay there and forget, oh my goodness, this is all given to me. And gratitude is the thing that, that expands our world, gets us out of this cycle, and, and gets us to stay focused on our creator. So that's the lesson. The lesson of the wilderness is trust, dependency, humility. The lesson of the promised land is gratitude, thanks, and praise. And I just want to say that the lesson of the promised land is not guilt and shame because you don't deserve these things or because you have more than others. That's not the lesson. The lesson is gratitude, praise, thanksgiving. And I would add, I'm not going to preach on this because it's not in the passage. The other lesson is generosity. That's the other. That's just sort of the natural response of gratitude is is just this open-handed generosity with all this stuff that we've been given. Okay, that's a whole other sermon or a whole other sermon series. All right. So I know I went a little long. Um, Let me leave you um, with this. We're all in different seasons of our lives right now. Um, But that being said, we are very blessed people. Um, We are such blessed people. And so I, I would leave you with the question to ask yourself, how am I responding to the blessings that I'm receiving in my life these days? Uh, when I'm eating and being satisfied, am I just staying in a little loop of I'm enjoying these blessings and I'm, um, these blessings give me a sense of self-sufficiency and God is somewhere on the outside kind of and I'm just, you know, he's there but I don't, he's not at the heart of my life. Or are these experiences experiences of him? Do all these blessings actually draw me closer to my Lord, not farther away? which is to say, do you have a practice of gratitude in your life? And scripture regularly commands us, give thanks, give thanks, give thanks in all circumstances, give thanks. So what is our practice? What is our habit? What is our posture of gratitude? And there's just so many different ways we can do this. There are really specific, tangible ways. There are just general ways we can do this. I would suggest the beginning of the day it's a really good opportunity. If you're looking for specific practices, the beginning of the day is a good opportunity to give thanks. At the very end of the day is a very good opportunity to review your day and to go back over with the posture of thanksgiving. I believe that a Sabbath day once a week, however you understand that or however you pursue that, is a really good opportunity for gratitude. Just as God worked for six days and stepped back and with gratitude said, it's really good what I just made. Sabbath is an opportunity opportunity to enter into God's rhythm of appreciation, to live six days and then to step back and with thanks say, indeed, God, what you have done this week is very good, okay? And every time you move into another thing in your day, those are opportunities for gratitude, So what what does gratitude look like in your life? And how could you embark on a deeper journey of gratitude and thanksgiving to your Lord? Let's pray. I want to give you, actually, rather than praying for us, I want to give you a little bit of space. And and just first to say, um, maybe... Some of you, as you hear this, this theme, uh, the warnings and the opportunities, maybe there's a, there's a place for confession in this for you. And maybe not, but, but maybe there's just, you, you look at this, man, gosh, I, I need to confess maybe the ways that I've forgotten the Lord, um, the ways that I've you know, been living a self-sufficient life. And so I, I would invite you right now just to take a moment with the Lord and if that's there for you to confess it. So yeah this is this is true this is where i've been. I'll just give you a minute to do that if if that's you. And then the deeper conversation, I think, with the Lord is, is this, would be just to sit with him and say, Lord, what would it mean for me in this season of my life to practice gratitude faithfully and passionately? And all, each one of us is different. We're wired differently. Um, but it's worth sitting with the Lord and just saying, "Yeah, what, what, would that look, what could that look like for me? What could gratitude look like tangibly in my life in this season are there any specific practices I would engage or is it just a change of, of intention a change of posture Lord today as we are together we say together thank you um, you provide us with such rich blessings for our enjoyment, um, and we are recipients of your generosity and your grace, whether we acknowledge it or not. Your, your mercies are new every morning. Your grace is, is coming to us in, in a thousand different forms every day, and today we want to say thank you. We want to just take it in, be satisfied, but ultimately be satisfied not just by the gifts, but by you, the giver. Those are just small tokens of, of the beauty and wonder that you are. And so we say thank you. We give back our praise to you, Lord, as you give rich blessing in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name, your ultimate gift. Amen.